Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. I want to welcome everybody online. I want to welcome everybody at our Tempe campus. Good morning. Hope all of you are doing well. We love you. And we are continuing our series entitled The Real Jesus. Now, let me say, uh, I know last week was a little bit nerdy, okay? I I don't pull that lever uh, very often, uh, but you have to remember, I am a nerdy nerd, okay? And I mean that respectfully towards myself and all nerds all over the world. Um, (laughs) Because here's, let me remind you of something, because I heard some really sweet things after last week. I know we had a lot of visitors, we had a ton of people joining us online, probably a lot of them for the first time. And I I just wanna kinda make one comment to kinda calibrate. Um, And it's not just about me, it's about us. It's a value we have here at this church. I don't study to be intellectual. I study to be intimate. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, disciples are learners. And here's one of the things you have to remember about being a learner. Lovers are always learners, always. Lovers are learners. When I proposed to my wife, I looked her right in the eyes and I said, by the time I die, I am going to know more about you than any human being who has ever set foot on this planet. Why? Lovers are learners. And what we're doing in this series, we're not just, I'm not just trying to give you new stuff. So that you go, oh man, I've never seen that before. And that's great. If it reminds you there's so much more about God that you can personally know, we just have to chase after him. He said, hey, I will be found by you, but you've got to seek after me. I'm not just going to hand it to you. It's divine hide and seek. And not from the standpoint of just playing a game to play a game. That's what love does. Come chase me. Come after me. And one of the ways we do that is through God's word, right? How many of us have ever, at the beginning of a new year, set a New Year's resolution to read through the whole Bible in a year? Just put your hand up, okay? Online, at Tempe. Okay, a lot of us. How many of us, when we endeavored to read the Bible through in a year, had some sections of the Bible we sped through. Let's just say it that way. Leviticus. Huh? You know what I'm talking about? How about the begats? Anybody ever fast forwarded through the begats? Okay. I want to show you a a couple pages out of my Bible. I have a highlighting system, uh, yellow, orange, and pink when I read through God's word, and this is kind of a typical page. Yellow is kind of an informative, uh, typically one-liner. Orange, you know I love one-liners. Orange is a good one-liner, strong one-liner, and pink is just a drop-the-mic type one-liner. And here's one of my problems that I've come to realize about me when I read through scripture. Subconsciously, I have a tendency to always speed to the pink on the page. Because in my mind, I know that's the most important stuff. But I want to read you a a verse in scripture to remind us all what God says about his word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All. Everybody say all. 
all scripture is God breathed. All of it. Even the parts we have a tendency to fudge our way through. All scripture is God breathed. Every bit of it. And here's what we need to remember. In scripture, some of the most extravagant treasures are hidden in the deepest of caves. You have to chase after it a little bit. That's the fun of following Jesus. It's not just handed to me. I have to pursue him, run after him. That's what we're doing in this series. I wanna show you, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter one. And I wanna show you what Matthew chapter one looks like in my Bible so that we can all admit we're on the same page. There are no highlights on Matthew chapter one, okay? I'm gonna do something in this message I've never done before. We're gonna go through the genealogy of Jesus. That is the entire message. I've never done it before. For those of you who were here last week and you thought that that was kind of one of the nerdiest messages, I'm sure that was a one-off. I'll come one more week and see how this, this goes. And now I'm preaching the genealogy. Just as an FYI, Thursday night I preached the genealogy of Jesus and some people got saved. So it's a reminder All scripture is God, even the genealogies. The title of this message is The Genius of the Genealogy. The Genius of the Genealogy. Let's start together in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read 16 verses of scripture. All right? Read it with me. Matthew 1, verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David. Your translation may say the son of David and the son of Abraham or and of Abraham. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Hit the pause button. I forgot to tell you, if you're pregnant or you're trying to get pregnant and you're praying about names and you want unique, (laughs) look no further than the genealogy of Jesus. Why spend 20 bucks on the book? Hottest names. Those are all the names people are naming their kids. Just look right here. Aminadab. 15 years from now, mommy, why did you name me Aminadab? Because we'd never heard of anybody else being named that before except one person. You're unique. Okay, let's keep going. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Your translation probably says the wife of Uriah and doesn't name Bathsheba by name. Most translations do it like that. Verse seven, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. 
Jotham, though, was the father of Ahaz. I know you weren't sure how that one was going to turn out. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers born at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of my favorite name in this genealogy, Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, my second favorite name. Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Can you not see all of the revelation teeming in the genealogy of Jesus? All of those begats, it's jumping off of the page. Can't you see it? Okay, most of us can't. I couldn't until I spent two weeks studying it. But I'm telling you right now, one of the things I hope we are all reminded of with this message is every page of God's word reveals more of who God is, even the begats. So I want to give you a couple of things, four things to be specific, that I believe the genealogy of Jesus reveals to us. Here's point number one. First thing I think, and I, I, this is a little bit uh, tongue in cheek, but I think the genealogy of Jesus points out is this, Jesus is not a fairy tale. The genealogy of Jesus reminds us Jesus is not a fairy tale. The New Testament starts off with a family tree, not with the words, once upon a time. Too many believers are walking the face of the earth, acting like there's a possibility that the New Testament kicks off with the words, once upon a time. Now, let me give you some context as to why it's so bold to start the New Testament with the genealogy. In Jewish tradition, the genealogy is a huge deal, huge. Think about it like this. Uh, if you wanted to buy property in this day, buy or sell property, you had to show your genealogy. One of the ways they protected the allotment of land to the tribes was through the genealogies. So you had to prove that you had a right to that land before you could buy it. So you, had, you, you couldn't just say, I want that land. You had to bring your genealogy and say, I belong to the tribe that was allotted that land. Okay, here's another one. If you wanted to be a priest, you couldn't just say, I feel called by the Lord to be a priest in the temple. You had to bring your genealogy to the table and prove that you were from the line of Aaron. Okay, so think about this. One of the easiest ways to expose a poser, a pretender in Jewish tradition was via the genealogy. If you were afraid that someone was going to expose a pretender, a poser that you were following as a disciple, you would not kick off your book with his genealogy. It could be proven. They could go into the temple, they could find the genealogy of Jesus, and they could, if he were a pretender, see 
That's not true. There is a measure of boldness. Think about this. This is a very big deal. 400 years had passed since the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew. It's called 400 years of prophetic silence. In essence, God went quiet. And the first words out of his mouth are the begats. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. These are the first words. Don't overlook that. Here's what this means to you. Your faith in Jesus is based on fact, not on fiction. Matthew starts off his book by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, you want proof? Here it is. Let's start here. We are not ashamed. Jesus was not a myth. He was not a fairy tale. He was a man who lived, died, and was raised from the dead because he was not just a man. He's the son of God. Here's the second thing we see in the genealogy. God is a promise keeper. God is a promise keeper. Did you know that God loves to be known as a promise keeper? One who makes and keeps promises. Now, I know many of us as humans in a fallen world have, have been in a situation where someone made a promise to us but didn't keep it. How many of you have ever experienced that before? Okay, all of us have. And here's the tendency. When someone has made a promise to us that we really wanted them to hold and they didn't keep it, we can have the tendency to put on everyone else, you're not gonna be a promise keeper either. And sometimes we have to be reminded, just because someone you love made you a promise that didn't keep it, it doesn't mean that's how God rolls. And in the genealogy of Jesus, whether, whether you see it or not, beneath it is this underlying pointing to a promise, and I'm gonna show it to you in scripture. But before we get there, I want you to understand, I think it's pretty clear throughout scripture that God loved and loves to be identified as a promise maker and promise keeper. Joshua at the end of his life, in Joshua chapter 21, verse 45, said not a single one of all the good promises the Lord had given to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Not a single one. Every promise God made, God has kept. Everything he had spoken came true. How about Solomon when he's dedicating the temple? In 1 Kings 8.56, he says, Praise the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the wonderful promises he gave through his servant Moses. God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to flip over to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to read two verses. And I want you to see part of where this promise, it goes much further back. I'm going to show you two passages but one of the most famous messianic prophecies or promises speaking of the coming Messiah is in Isaiah 9. This is part of why Matthew chapter 1, Christ's genealogy, is such a big deal. It's Isaiah 9. Let's read it together. Verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. 
and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Watch this next part. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David, okay, that's an important line right there. On, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Now watch this next line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's answering an implied question. How will this promise be accomplished? Scripture tells us by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. God is excited, ecstatic to keep every promise he makes to you and to me. He has never been afraid of disappointing you in accordance to any promise he has ever made you. Now, let me remind you, just because God makes you a promise doesn't mean he'll fulfill it on your timetable. Let me just remind you of that so you don't set your expectations. God made me a promise, it's gonna come true tomorrow. No, some promises may come true in your great, great, great grandchildren's life and not yours. But that doesn't change the fact that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. Part of why Matthew chapter one is such a big deal is because God is pointing back to Isaiah nine saying, I told you, I promised. I promised you, and here he is. Now, flip over to Genesis 12. This is the very beginning of the promise. This is what's called the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse one. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, this is the Abrahamic covenant. The three parts were land, legacy, and a blessing to the nations. Now here's what you need to understand about the Abrahamic covenant. It's what's called a unilateral covenant. And it gives us a beautiful picture of what God is like. A unilateral or unconditional covenant is when two parties come together but only one of the two parties has any responsibility. Think about that for a sec. The covenant God is making with Abraham is not based on what Abraham does. Fast forward to Genesis 15. God enacts this covenant and think about it. Here's how you know it's a one-sided covenant because Abraham is asleep when God makes it with him. God passes through the halves of animal by himself, not with Abram. Okay, here's what you need to remember about your God. God is a covenant-making God because he is a promise-keeping God. Covenant is the strongest form of promise. God was saying to Abraham, this is the kind of God I am. I don't just make promises. I bind myself to my promises. And here's what's great about this covenant I'm making with you, Abram. It's one-sided. It's unilateral. I promise you. 
I promise you these things. Matthew chapter 1 points all the way back to Genesis 12. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. Not the entire fulfillment. He is the embodiment of the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. God doesn't just like to make promises. He loves to bind himself, to be bound to promises. Now think about this. I'm a dad. I have three kids. And one of the things I learned early on about promises is kids take them very seriously. If you say, when one of the kids says, Daddy, can we go play pickleball later today or later this week? And you say, absolutely, I promise we're going to go play pickleball. Okay, what's going to happen? If a day or two goes by and there's no pickleball, what are you going to hear in your house? Daddy, you promised. Why aren't we playing pickleball, Daddy? You promised. And then if you have that one child that probably is going to be an attorney as they grow up, they, they say something like this. Are you a promise breaker, Daddy? Do you break your promises? Yeah, that's when you know they're really going after you. They really want to play pickleball when they talk like that. Okay, I learn promises are a big deal to kids. And if I had made a promise that I knew I couldn't keep, I'm just going to, I'm going to be honest about this. I learned don't bring it up again. If I knew I wasn't going to be able to keep it, I learned don't remind them of the promise. You know what's awesome about God? All through scripture, God, just in case anybody forgot some of his promises, he brings them back up time and time again. Like, hey, hey, Preston, I think you forgot. I want to, I promise. Look, look, I promise. I made a promise. I'm a promise making and promise keeping God. He's constantly reminding mankind of his promises. Why? Because he's a promise keeping God, a covenant making God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. They have all been fulfilled in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Notice it says, amen, not a woman. That was so cheesy, but I had to. I mean, it didn't even get the grammar right. Amen, plural, a woman. Never mind. I mean, come. This is unbelievable. Forget the picture here, though. Here's the picture, and it's wonderful, and we should celebrate it as disciples of Jesus Christ. God says, I promise. Jesus says, yeah. And the people of God are supposed to respond saying, let it be so. Amen. Our God is a promise-making God. That should give us confidence. He is faithful. One of my favorite promises in Scripture that we see recorded, and I think many of us just read right over it, but one of my favorite promises in Scripture is Genesis 3. I'm not going to read it to you, but it's a promise, so to speak, that God gives the serpent. A promise he gives Satan. A curse. A curse is a negative promise. What does God say to the serpent after Adam and Eve fall? 
He looks at the serpent and he says, hey, listen, this is my paraphrase. He says, hey, listen, I'm gonna crush you. And let me know, let me let you know how I'm gonna do this. Through the seed of a woman. That's what he says. I'm gonna crush you through the seed of a woman. Okay. In college, as a communicator, they teach you about something called the pregnant pause. Okay. They teach you that if, it, if you just know the right place to stop talking and let it breathe for a minute, it draws your audience in. Okay. Many people look at the 400 year prophetic silence period in scripture between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew as though it were some negative thing. Here's what I personally believe. It's the most divine pregnant pause in all of human history. When you, they teach you, when you insert a pregnant pause, make sure whatever you say on the other side of it is strong and, and has a hook because it, that's your chance to draw in the hearer, the listener. Okay, think about this. God, in essence, takes 400 years off from talking to the earth. Why? I wonder if it wasn't just to draw attention to the first words out of his mouth. Hear ye, hear ye, the baby has arrived. I promised in Genesis 3 to the serpent, I was going to crush him through the seed of a woman. Amen. Now the baby has come. The genealogy is a huge deal. It's huge. And one of the things that it reminds us of is our God is a promise-keeping God. Hebrews 10, 23. So let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? For he who promised is what? Faithful to keep his promises. The genealogy of Jesus reminds us just how faithful our God is. He's a promise-making, promise-keeping God. Here's the third thing we see in the genealogy of Jesus. God is detail-oriented. God is detail-oriented. Now, it's going to get a little nerdy, nerdy in point number three. There's something called the, the gematria in Jewish tradition, here's what it means. It's an alphanumeric code where the Hebrew letters correspond to a number, okay? So Matthew starts off his genealogy and, and in verse 17, I didn't read it, but he points out to the fact that there are 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, okay, as he goes through the genealogy. This is on purpose. To the Jewish reader, they understood the gematria. So they knew that David's name corresponded with a number, 14. The letters in his name, the Dalet, Vav, Dalet. Four, the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the sixth letter in the fourth letter. Four plus six is what? 10 plus four is what? 14, okay? So here's what Matthew is doing to kick off his gospel. David, David, David. That's what he's doing. So to a Jewish reader, that they are catching this because one, if not the most important thing about the coming Messiah, he had to be the son of David. He had to be from the line of David. If he wasn't, he could not be the Messiah. So Matthew starts off the genealogy just in case there's any debate and, and says, David, David, David. Now understand in scripture, anytime something is repeated three times, it's for emphatic emphasis. It's to drive a point home. David, after 400 years, 
prophetic silence declares, son of David, son of David, son of David. Now, the scholarly among us are probably thinking right now, hold on just a second, Preston. Matthew skipped some generations to get to 14, 14, 14. You would be correct. He did. He didn't get them wrong. He just pulled them out. He removed them. He knew someone could go right to the temple. They could find the genealogy of Jesus, go all the way back. The line was still straight. He just removed some for emphasis. Okay? So if that's not enough to help you see a little bit that God's detail-oriented, and if I were you, it wouldn't be enough. So let's go a little bit further. There are two recorded in Scripture genealogies of Jesus. The first one we've already read in Matthew. Anybody know where the other one is? Luke. Luke. One of the biggest objections in Jewish tradition of Jesus being the Messiah is the two recorded genealogies in the New Testament disagree with one another. They have different names. So let me, let me kind of break this down for you. The, the, there are two differing genealogies of Jesus, but let me help you understand why. Matthew records Joseph's line. Luke records Mary's. Here's what's really interesting. All the way to David, their genealogies match up. But when we get to David, they divert. Okay, just hang with me. I know this is a little bit nerdy. For those of you who did, have done your 23andMe, you're going to love this. For those of you who couldn't care less, you should love this, and I pray that you do, okay? They divert after David. Matthew records Joseph's line. Joseph's line traces through David's son, Solomon. This is called the royal line of David. This is where the kings came from, okay? Here's a problem though. About, I think it's about 14 generations after Solomon, there's a king named Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim so angers God that God curses him. And I want to read it to you. In Jeremiah chapter 22, it's really strong. Listen to how God curses Jehoiakim, but also the royal line of David. Jeremiah 22, verse 30. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless. Speaking of Jehoiakim, we see that a couple verses earlier. That's who this is talking about. A man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. In other words, anyone from his family line after him. None of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David. This presents a problem. None will rule anymore in Judah. Here's the problem. How can Jesus be the lion of the tribe of Judah if God curses the royal line of David and says, no one from his line can rule Judah any longer. No one from his line can sit on the throne of David. We have a problem and it's God's curse. How can Jesus, some of you already know where this is going. How can Jesus have legal and spiritual right to the throne of David if God cursed the line Christ came from? Here's the answer, his mother's side. And before I even read you his mother's side, can I remind you 
And Luke reminds us of this. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. He was an adopted father. Whose father? Who was the father of Jesus? God. Mary was the mother, biological mother. So think about this. The curse biologically ends at Jesus with Joseph. But if that weren't enough, it's almost like God playing chess just goes, come on, Preston. That's like first grade stuff. Let's go further. Let me give you the bloodline of Mary. Go back to David. Mary comes from David and Bathsheba's second son, Nathan. So Matthew tracks Joseph through Solomon, where the curse exists. Luke tracks Mary through Nathan, where there is no curse. Most people don't know Mary was in the bloodline of King David. Think about this. Jesus had two paths. He was two for two. Do you know what the odds of that are? The two people. And if you say, well, he wasn't biologically related to Joseph, so he had no claim. Fine, you can have that argument. I'll still stick with Mary. Through Mary, Jesus had a physical claim, not just a legal claim, to the throne of David. God is so detail-oriented. How did he get around his own curse? A virgin birth. A virgin birth. The virgin birth is such a big deal, not just because it proves Jesus is the son of God, but it also addresses a curse God put on the line of David many, many years before the birth of Christ. Why? Because our God is detail-oriented. Now, what does this mean to you? Let me try and connect this to you. How many of us have ever felt like God was distant? Let's just be honest. Okay, just put your hand up. Online, at Tempe. Okay. We've all had that feeling. God's distant. He's so big, I'm so small. How could he care about my little life? I want to show you something that David writes in Psalm 56. And if you have your Bible, you can turn over to it because it's just so beautiful to see. Because it isn't just that God is detail-oriented about nerdy genealogies. He's detail-oriented about everything. He is a detail-oriented God. And let me show you how that impacts and affects you and me. Psalm 56, verse eight. David says to God, you keep track of all of my sorrows. You keep track. You don't just know them. You are tracking all of my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. How can you tell me God is distant and doesn't care about every detail of your life if this is true. Think about this. You remember how your mom and dad or someone in your life, or maybe it was a grandparent, kept all of your kindergarten, first grade art projects? 
They, they just collected them all. They put them on the refrigerator and they made such a big deal out of them. God does a thousand times more than that. He takes your tears and records them. Well, Preston, I, I'm not sure this is being literal. Oh, okay. I'll grant you that. Let's say it isn't being literal. The one of whom God said, that's a man after my own heart. Another way to say that is, this guy gets me. God inspired that man to write these words. And if not literally literal, they at the very least point to the heart of God that every time you have sorrow, every time you cry, no matter what it's about, the God of the universe is present there with you, not patting you on the back, he is recording, he is tracking, he is monitoring, he is present. Every moment of your life. He is so detail-oriented that he is recording. He's recording everything that happens in your life. Here's the last thing probably my favorite thing. The genealogy of Jesus is a revelation of God's grace. Jesus' genealogy is a revelation of God's grace. Here's another way to say it in the form of one-liner. Christ's gene pool is overflowing with God's grace. One of the big differences between Matthew's recording of Christ's genealogy and Luke's, Luke doesn't mention any women. Luke doesn't skip any generations, okay? He, he's the doctor. He doesn't skip a thing and doesn't put women. This was common and still is. It, it, putting a woman in the genealogy, it, it was unheard of. You were tracked through the male, through each male in your genealogy. That's how you were tracked, okay? Matthew puts in some women, but he doesn't just put four women into the genealogy, all four of the women he mentions were Gentiles, not Jewish. Not only that, three of the four women Matthew mentions in Jesus' bloodline were known for gross sexual misconduct. Let's revisit. Bathsheba, what is she known for? Taking a bath naked on a roof and David screwing everything up. They have an affair. Uriah is killed because of King David's order. Okay, this wasn't just an adulterous affair. It was murderous. That's in Jesus' bloodline. Think about this. If you were trying to paint a picture of the perfect Messiah, wouldn't you, if you were gonna cut out a few generations, don't you think you would cut out the dirtiest ones? And he just throws Bathsheba in there. Ruth is mentioned, the Moabitess, that was not a flattering term. She was a Gentile. How about Rahab? Rahab's mentioned. Remember what Rahab was famous for? Hiding the Israelite spies, yes, but what was her profession? She's a prostitute. If you were trying to brag about the perfect bloodline of the Messiah, don't you think you would leave out the fact that he's got prostitution in his gene pool? How about Tamar? 
Tamar's one, most likely the Jewish people would most want to leave out. Why? Because she was the daughter-in-law of Judah, tricked him to get pregnant. He thought he was propositioning a prostitute. She was posing as a prostitute to get pregnant so that she could have kids. Okay, we just went through Thanksgiving and Christmas. You probably at some point got together with your family. You thought your family was screwed up? Do any of you have someone in your gene pool, no matter how far back it goes, who propositioned their father-in-law to get pregnant? Yeah, I don't think so. Money on the fact that that isn't in your gene pool. Why would Matthew so boldly mention these things in the, the genealogy of Jesus? I'll tell you why I think Matthew did it. Because the, the family Jesus came from reveals the very family Jesus came for. Amen. One of the biggest things I think the enemy uses with people who don't know Jesus yet to try and keep them from giving control of their lives to Jesus is you're too dirty to be in God's family. You are too messed up to be a part of God's family. And you probably didn't know this, but Jesus' genealogy reminds us he knows about messy family. He knows about the mess. Jesus himself said it. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. His very genealogy reminds us there is room in God's family for messy. I wonder how often we put on ourselves the weight of our sin. I'm so bad, I'm so terrible. God, God would never wanna come close to me, even after salvation. Many of us do it from time to time. Imagine how much more someone who doesn't know Jesus does it when they become aware of their sin. And here's one of the most beautiful revelations of the love story between God and Israel. That God is communicating to us. If Israel couldn't out sin my love and my promises, neither can you. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace. And where is that mercy and grace most evident? God sending his son, fully God, born of a woman, fully man, to die in my place. Jesus isn't a myth. Jesus is the God who came to save. And his genealogy in so many ways is one of the most in your face declarations in the face of the devil himself. Communicates so many things to us. Our God is a promise keeping God. Who is detail oriented. 
whose arms are wide open. He's not, Jesus didn't come to build the perfect family. Jesus came to redeem the imperfect and make, him, make them part of his family. Here's my hope today with this message. That you be reminded that on the pages of scripture, every single one of them, even the begats that you've skipped over most likely so many times, God still speaks. And every day of your life, you were designed to hear the voice of God through the word of God. And every time you do, you'll see a side of God you've never seen before. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.